Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 204. In this episode, we're talking about attachment and family trauma with Andy Kolber. Andy Culver is a licensed professional counselor and the author of Try Softer and Strong Like Water. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Dr. John Anthony Dunn, and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. In this episode, we're talking with Andy Culver about attachment trauma. Guys, what did you find interesting in this conversation? I really appreciated hearing about how different attachment styles um, relate to our experiences of trauma. Um, Andy is going to lay out what these different attachment styles are, and it's just really helpful and interesting to think about uh, the ways that we might um, connect to different people in different ways, and then and then how that might actually play out in in some hybrid ways where it might not be a sort of static attachment style, but there might actually be different attachment styles for different types of people. And so I really appreciate that nuance in particular. I really appreciate how Andy Kolber spoke towards creating a safe place. Um, so we can have some insights and tips on how we can create safety for people that have experienced trauma, how we, um, it's essential that we work on ourselves and really just gave us a, an insight into if we're doing the work on ourselves and we're doing the right thing because we're able to be with other people in a way that is going to be healing and it's going to be nurturing for them. I always appreciate the focus on the connection between our bodies and minds. Um, and I think that it's helpful for us just because that's a good kind of understanding of the composition of a person, but it also really releases us from a lot of shame and all of that. You know, as I've sort of done my own trauma work, it's been so useful to think my body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do when it has a trauma response rather than thinking, how dare you? Um, and so I appreciated the way that Andy framed that for us. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Andy Culper. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So last time on the podcast, we had a really interesting and helpful introduction to trauma from Dr. Chuck DeGroat. And what we would like to do with you is to really kind of continue that conversation, um, but really to kind of focus in on, on some of your work on attachment trauma. So, but to really just kind of set the stage, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your approach to trauma work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is a really important element of trauma work that um, isn't always discussed, this particular piece around um, attachment. So I'm excited to unpack that. But I think generally speaking, um, you know, so I have a couple of books and Try Softer and then um, Strong Like Water. And, and one of the themes in, in both of those books um, is the role of compassion in in healing. And, you know, I think there's lots of potential for faith integration with that. Um, I think how, you know, God's posture towards us as, as so compassionate and just from like a neurobiological perspective, um, the importance of compassion in trauma work, it, it, it simply, it can't be overstated. Um, it's like a, a system that, um, is feeling unsafe. It is, you know, sort of the opposite of, of someone who's experiencing that sense of compassion. And in many ways, that ability to soften into safety is like this embodiment of like the posture we need to be able to move towards wholeness. And so in terms of my approach, I think that is a, a distinctive for me that it's um, not that other folks don't value that, but I think in part because of my own story, my own lived experience, um, my own experience as someone who follows Jesus, all of those things coming together that I have found 
um, especially when I really started to get going on this work, that I I wanted there to be more um, more resources that helped folks who'd experienced trauma really touch um, on the tangible elements of that compassion. Um, so so yes, I am so excited for us to get to talk a little bit about attachment today. All right, listeners, I'll just go ahead and follow up. Could you define attachment and, you know, why is this a, a particularly prevalent form of, of trauma or maybe a, a very meaningful form of trauma? Yeah, well, I might, I'll back up just a little bit and, and first, yeah, just to talk about attachment and, and really the ways that, um, it's a, it's a pretty big category. So I'll, there's going to be things that I miss. So just for folks who are listening, it's, there's so much to say, but I think generally when we talk about attachment, it's helpful for us to understand, um, that our attachment style is sort of like a template that we carry in our bodies, almost like a computer program has like, this is like, if you tell it to work from a certain program, it's kind of has sort of an, um, a general idea of like, Hey, in this situation, (laughs) I'm going to do this. And so our attachment style is really based off of our earliest interactions with our caregivers. I mean, that's where it really begins. And so from those very first breaths, even the ways that we were responded to, the ways we were attuned to, or perhaps not attuned to, um, the ways that we, um, were comforted in pain, um, the ways that, um, are maybe the family dynamics around our personality and all that kind of connection, all of that it literally shapes our nervous system, which has a huge part in also shaping that internal template that we talk about when we talk about attachment. And so it's that idea that it's both something that was created and also is being created. Um, Like every time we have interactions with folks, we are sort of pulling up that attachment system and we're and we're sort of like making predictions based off of all those experiences about how people might interact with us and with that said if if something happens that is perhaps like reparative let's say you had a a parent who often um really missed your cues that you were in pain but then you have a dear friend and you are in pain and something about that situation. It's like they see you in a way that you were never seen. That has that potential to create a reparative experience, which um, can help to reshape the template that you hold in your body. So, so all that to say, this idea of attachment is a way of talking about how we relate in different relationships. And that can be true about um, almost any relationship. And that includes our relationship to God as well. Um, and so, and so to answer your second question there, um, some of that attachment trauma or even, you know, sort of attachment wounding, things like that, um, kind of going back to that description, because we, we have this innate need. For connection. I mean, it's just hardwired into us. Like we just literally babies who are not held and attended to die based off of literally the lack of touch. Right. I mean, this is how deeply it is within us. Um, and so when we have experiences that, um, where we have needed that God given need to be witnessed or connected to, or, um, you know, particularly, I mean, it's true when we're kids, but even as adults, when we have those experiences and the, those people, those primary folks in our lives, um, are not able to attend to us in the ways that we really need, um, our body may encode that as, as deeply disturbing. And that is then what creates um, trauma out of attachment. 
could you also tell us a bit about the different templates uh, that are talked about, the different attachment styles um, that people refer to, and perhaps what hybrid styles might look like, especially for people who don't find themselves kind of neat, neat, neatly fitting into um, one of the those broader templates? Yes. Yes. Great question. Um, so yeah, so attachment styles, this is really from the work of Dr. John Bowlby and then um, Mary Ainsworth had, were the were the folks who first really identified and began to categorize um, attachment styles. And so essentially, we think about when we think about our needs getting met in a way that is good enough. So this is a phrase taken out of psychology. Um, Dr. Donald Winnicott came up with this phrase, and I might talk about it later because there's been some more research around it. But essentially, when we have the amount of support that allows us to not perfectly feel like we're like everyone's there for us, but it's enough to where we're like, okay, like I matter. <laughs> I'm getting feedback from others. I'm not alone. Um, it's that sort of experience. We This is called secure attachment. And there's like this internalized belief within, with secure attachment that even if we have a rupture, even if things get missed, even if like fill in the blank, there will be, I predict that at some point we will repair. Like that is what lives in, in my body when I can come from that place. So you can feel that there's a lot of hope connected to this idea that it's it's like, yeah, things may happen, but somehow like we're going to figure this out, you know, and folks that might come from a secure attachment. It's not that life is perfect and it's not like they don't have issues that come up or they might have to have confrontation. But the majority of the time, they're probably more more accurately um, seeing what's in front of them. They're, it's like they're they're sort of in touch with what's um, less of the past is influencing the current situation. So this secure attachment, this is this this thing that we hope to move toward. Um, you know, because lots of folks, many folks have insecure attachments, and there's no shame in that. That's really common. Um, so the, there are three other categories, and this is what would be considered the insecure attachment. Um, the first one is, is tends to be called anxious ambivalent. And this tends to be connected to folks who had caregivers who um, deeply showed up occasionally. But on many, many, many occasions, um, for reasons like maybe the parents own mental health issues, maybe sometimes it's structural, you know, maybe there are other elements going on, but the way the kiddo internalizes that experience is I am going to be let down. Like I will be like, I will be abandoned in this. I am, this is not, um, like this is what's probably going to happen is that people won't be able to show up for me. And so that's a, this difficult experience, obviously for those four folks who carry this, because when you get into a situation, um, where maybe someone, um, really does care about you, but like life happens and they weren't able to follow through, that can be very painful, right? Because it's like this feeling of like, oh, I thought this was going to happen and it did happen. And so there tends to be, you know, there's this element of having to have, um, and, and this isn't a bad thing, but being able to communicate with those important folks in their life around, here's what's coming up for me when you didn't call when X happened or when there wasn't as much, you know, when you had said there would be a follow through and then there wasn't. So it's, it's one of those things where um, even doing that repair though, then again, also helps us move towards more of that security. Um, the next one is what would be called avoidant attachment. And, and this is for folks who, um, you know, have internalized, like oftentimes their caregivers have been really unavailable. Like maybe they physically were able to give, like you had food, you had clothing, you had shelter. Um, but one of the things that tends to be really common is that, but like your emotions, your emotional needs, like 
there's no room for that. Like either we're too busy or like, we just don't do that here. We, we don't, we don't have space to feel whatever you're feeling. So, so what be, what becomes internalized for those folks is I have to do this all on my own. I am all by myself. Like, um, it's not that people occasionally showed up. It's that they never, ever have. And so folks from this place, what happens is they learn to isolate. And it's usually a form of, and we can maybe get into this later, but like there's a term called dissociation, which is a form of disconnecting from our body in order to tolerate what we're experiencing. So from the outside, people might experience that person as being really calm when they're isolating that way. But part of what is probably happening is dissociating from the situation in order to, um, to tolerate what's, what's happening like that sense of like, well, I'm on my own anyways. So I just gotta, I just gotta handle it. And, and for folks in those situations, oftentimes the work is, um, slowly and in a way our body can handle learning to build our tolerance for that emotional connection. Because for folks coming from that avoidant place, anything that feels like it could be conflict has the potential to be like, oh man, that's too much. And I got to just like get out of here. Because as a kiddo or maybe at whatever age that got shifted, um, our body, it was too much. You did have to do that all, all on your own. And so that's the other one. Um, and then the third one, um, is a, is called disorganized attachment. Disorganized attachment tends to be, um, for f- when folks have experienced, um, caregivers or partners or systems where those, those primary connections, um, are both the source of the trauma and the place where we're supposed to get our care. So like for a kiddo, it's like a parent who is, you know, abusive puts a kiddo in a, in a double bind because we as kids are wired to attach to our parents, to our caregivers. And so what what it creates in a kiddo's body is a sense of like like come closer but get away it's like that little bit of like um it can create a sense of frozenness like i want to be connected but i'm also terrified of being connected because being connected has meant i experience harm and this tends to be true um i mean all of these insecure attachments can hold different types of um trauma within them this this type of style though tends to be um especially true for folks who have um like many trauma survivors many folks who've experienced like complex PTSD things like that will um often have this disorganized attachment style because it is it's when those places that should have been the safest are not it deeply affects the um you know, the way our bodies and our nervous systems form. I do want to answer also this other piece about the blended. Um, Yes, just this blended style. And I think one thing I think is important to understand. So for folks who are listening, you're like, well, I I feel that here. And maybe here I feel this. Um, So I'm not really sure. And I think that's actually really normal too. Like I think oftentimes we talk about these categories. I mean, it's easy for me to explain it like it's this really clean category, but in life, it's rarely that clean. Um, and so one thing to understand is that different relationships can evoke different attachment styles. So you could potentially have one attachment style with one caregiver and potentially a different attachment style with another, or you might have like Here's your, here's an attachment style with God. Here's an attachment style with like a trusted friend or adult. And then here's an attachment style with a caregiver. Um, and so then when you get into different situations at other times in your life, oftentimes because our body is always taking in cues of information, the, the folks that remind you of those people will be the ones that will evoke that type of style, right? So if your friend reminds you of your mom, 
if something in your body feels that, that will tend to connect that. So I think oftentimes this is just that internal work of it's not a diagnosis. It's, it's, it's a framework. It's a way to say, okay, you know, in this situation, I'm noticing a lot of terror <laughs> that, that about this situation. I want to get, I want to get curious about what that might be about. Or I'm somehow predicting that these people who are always showing up for me are just going to disappoint me. I just want to get curious about that. Thanks. That was great. Um, as we think about kind of healing and building resiliency, when we experience people who experience trauma or even ministering to people who experience trauma, uh, I found like in pastoral ministry, there's this expectation of like a, a bam Jesus moment where all of a sudden they're healed and free and trauma is not a thing anymore. Mm. Um, can you explain just a little bit about the process of what that looks like and the importance of engaging in that process of building resiliency in a safe setting? Yeah. And the expectation of the BAM is kind of one of those not helpful things, maybe. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a really fair, I think, perspective that like, you know, I, I certainly grew up in that, <laughs> which um, and I think a lot of folks that I work with, I think um, that maybe sometimes continues to be a prevalent idea. Um, and, and it's interesting because you know, I think Western culture even, uh, which we wouldn't always think about like, oh, the church. I, I mean, I just think that there's an influence there around this idea like, oh, here, like, I'll just check this box. Like I went to therapy three times. So like, I'm good, <laughs> you know, like, I guess I'm good now. Um, and that's just not, you know, that's not how we work. That's not how we work as people. Um, even for folks who maybe don't identify themselves as trauma survivors, but just like what it means to be a human, what it means to be a person is that we are always in process, you know, just like those templates that live in our body that I described around attachment that are always shifting and changing. It's like, it's more like that. <laughs> that's more like what it's to be human, right? And and in the work of faith, you know, I think this is, you know, I, I think when Paul talks about the process of sanctification, I think there's a good, um, you know, sort of idea of that is a, that's a process. That's not this idea of um, it's finished. It's that we engage and we um, continue in this. And so, as it pertains, though, to trauma in particular, I think it's really important to understand that. Uh, I mean, this is one thing I think there's a huge misconception about, which is um, this idea that it's somehow pain that makes us strong. Um, when in reality, just from like a neurobiological perspective, in the absence of safety, we essentially cannot heal. I mean, in many ways, it's it's. If we do want to talk about something being simple, I would say that that is a simple truth. <laughs> like it's like it, someone cannot heal where their body physiologically feels unsafe, where they are not able to settle, um, where they are not able to access the functions of our body that um, allow us to tap into metabolizing, almost like we metabolize food or like we digest food. Like that's how our body processes like trauma, for example. And so in order to access those things, it's almost like experiences of safety, um, like in our, in our communities and then hopefully in our body. Um, like we oftentimes, like a trauma survivor, for example, may not have a whole lot of safety in their body. So they may first need to be in community situations, therapy that help them to feel some safety. And as their body is able, then it literally becomes internalized. Again, almost like that attachment idea becomes internalized. Same idea. Like when we are in it for long enough, our body begins to be like, oh, you know what? This isn't a fleeting thing that's going away. It can stay um, and, and sort of create this sense of um, it's sort of a secure base. And so as we begin to do that, this is the platform through which we can begin to say, here's an event 
that happened. You know, usually this is going to be in therapy or a really trusted um, place that will be able to sort of have the ability to help us hold the pain um, in a way that's not going to be harmful to the person who's experienced the trauma. And so as we uh, then bring that up, we then access the trauma and begin to feel it in a way and at a pace that our body can actually handle. And similar to like a gigantic meal, it's kind of like your body will begin to metabolize it. And so, you know, for folks who have maybe a history of trauma or really complicated trauma, this is where it's so important to understand this idea that this is why it's not a one and done type situation because there's all, first of all, there's all this pre-work that, that is the work. And that allows us then to access the actual pain. And then as we access the actual pain, we do it in a way that honors our body, our humanity, our spirit. And at the pace our body is able, we can then ultimately process it. And as we do, um, what's so cool about our bodies is that it's sort of like in many ways, trauma is like a file that's been like fragmented all through your body. It's like, it's been cut up. You know, you've got your sensation here and you've got a picture here and you've got a sound. And it's like the process of healing is the work of integration. It's taking all those experiences, allowing your body to feel it the way it originally needed to be able to feel it. And it gets to be put away um, correctly. So no longer does it remain this disturbing memory that you, when you bring it up, it causes you to feel flooded. Instead, we can begin to reflect on it and remember it, not like we're happy that it happened, but it doesn't have that same level of disturbance connected to it. Thank you so much, Andine. I, I think what you are touching on there is something that I've heard you talk about before. And since it's such a helpful sort of dis, uh, succinct definition of trauma, I wonder if you could impact that a little bit more. Is this something that Chuck hinted at a little bit, but how does trauma con connect the past and the present? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of the, one of the main, and it's a pretty broad definition. Um, I get a lot of my perspective on this from the work of Dr. Dan Siegel. Um, he talks about sort of trauma and, and really there's other folks too, like Dr. Stephen Porges. There's, there's sort of a whole, there's been a renaissance in trauma work for sure. But essentially this idea that trauma is anything that overwhelms our nervous system's capacity to cope. So when we think about it this way, um, and, and really kind of using that metabolizing perspective. It's sort of like this thing that we are experiencing is so big to our body. It's so overwhelming. It's so disturbing that the, the systems of our body that we have in place that allow things to be processed, they go offline. And what comes up in their place is our survival brain, right? So this is where we start to go into things like fight or flight. We might go into fawning, like over accommodating, giving people things that they want, even though we would, they're things that are totally out of alignment with what we really think. Um, if that doesn't work, our body may decide to go into forms of dissociation, you know, so that's forms of disconnection um, that can look like depression or that can look like numbness all the way to feeling outside of your body or even becoming unconscious. So there's like this whole big spectrum. And, and so when, as we think about that, one of the things that's important to understand is that when trauma gets encoded into the body, one of the places that it especially impacts um, is the right hemisphere of our amygdala. Now, the amygdala is like uh, low, you know, it's like our low brain. It's very, it's very much like the fire alarm. It's like a very powerful uh, part of our survival that when our body's like, oh man, like we got to do something or else we are literally going to die. Basically, that's, that's when our amygdala goes off. This is where trauma, it deeply impacts our amygdala. So one of the things that's important to understand about the right hemisphere is that it cannot tell the difference between past and present. 
So for folks who are either in a situation where they are currently being traumatized or for someone who's in a situation where trauma, past trauma is being activated, the more deeply um, unsafe the body feels, um, the more significantly um, those systems of our body that push us into survival will get activated. Um, and that then causes us to lose the orientation of time. So in a situation, um, you know, and, and this is, you know, folks who are listening who maybe have a history of trauma probably will resonate with this. Like there's a spectrum where like you might be a little activated, but you still kind of have a sense of like who you are all the way to like, oh, I felt like I was 10. Like I was in the situation and I felt 10 <laughs> and it was only later, like, you know, six hours later, I realized, oh, I felt 10, right? Like this is an example of the power of what happens um, when that, when our body is picking up cues. And I want to just say, our body does this not to be difficult. Our body does this because it has encoded those threats. And it says, oh man, whatever I have to do to keep you safe from that threat, like we will do it. And so when our body picks up cues that feel in any way similar to the threat, it could potentially send us into the full trauma response again in service of our safety, in service of saying, this is all that I could do last time. So we're going to do it again. And so alternately, in many ways, I like to think of trauma healing almost like, like, do you know those toys that, you know, for kids, like you really wind them up, right? And once they're all the way wound up, they're like, they do the funny things or whatever. But if you wind it up and you keep it there, there's a whole lot of tension just existing in that toy. In many ways, that's what it's like for trauma survivors. It's like they are constantly walking around with a huge amount of burden from this unwound, like they need, their body needs to be able to unwind what they've experienced. Um, but currently, for whatever reasons, um, there's not enough safety. There's not enough resources. Their body has not been able to access that. So the work of trauma healing in many ways is in accessing that that burden and gently and safely allowing what got so wound up to be unwound right and this is the risk because it's easy for folks to jump into wanting to help people with trauma um but i always say gosh you need to respect trauma you need to respect our bodies and the power of what our bodies can do in service of safety. And so as we do this, it really matters that we empower folks to listen to their own pace so that they can heal in a way that really honors their dignity. So a lot of people, I think, walk around with a pop psychology, like working knowledge of trauma, right? And, and in order to create safety or, or even mm -hmm. lack of like, a reaction or non-triggering, not trigger people, uh, they avoid uh, things rather than, you know, don't trigger me or I'll not say things or I won't trigger you, something like that. How do we, as, as people that want to step into a relationship with people, as pastors, as church, you know, fellow members that knowing other people who experience trauma, how do we create that safe place where that work is even possible to get started or we create a context of health and safety in a way that's honoring, like you said, respecting the trauma they've gone through and honoring the process that they will need to go through? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Well, I think, you know, the first thing I want to do is just acknowledge how, how big this is. <laughs> and so I'll give my best thoughts, but I do think, I mean, this is, this is big. And part of what I think is tricky is that, you know, we've gone so long with not have people not having language for their experiences. And so, you know, I know that there, I feel like there has been, there started to be a little bit of 
almost like a whiplash of people being like, trauma, it's everywhere, right? And and what I would just say, and I know this wasn't your exact question, but I might just start there, is to say, you know, I think that it's there are there are different types of trauma and there are different spectrums of trauma. And it's not bad for people to own that they may have experienced something that was so disturbing that it's still stuck in their body, right? Like that, I mean, from just like a functional level, that's what we're talking about with trauma. That's what we're saying, right? It doesn't mean all trauma is the same. It's saying that the possibility that that might be true is very high, particularly, I mean, you only have to look at the news for like a little bit of time, right? To say like, there are hard things that exist. And so here's what I would say the counterbalance is to some of that. And then I want to answer your actual question. <laughs> um, is that to some extent, it's like where we always want to be mindful is, and really bringing in almost like a Christian perspective is that I think that that only becomes harmful when we, if we ever use that as an excuse to harm other people. That's in my opinion, when we need to be very careful because ultimately what we are then doing is having like, we're dehumanizing We're the, if Jesus's command, you know, is to love your neighbor as yourself. If we are saying because of my own trauma, I get to cause pain. This is where we need to pump the brakes. Now it doesn't minimize the experience a person has. And I think this is the thing I'm very passionate about. Like if people need to be, if someone wants or needs to be witnessed in their pain, like makes sense. That's valid. That's so fair. You know what I mean? And I think that that's, I think always the risk is when we, when we begin to say, oh, because of this, then this. So I think that's the first thing I just, I kind of want to frame this other part of the question, which is like, how do we honor? I think, I think one of the biggest calls of our time is two things. One, to do our own work, whether you identify yourself as a trauma survivor or not, um, that the, in, you know, and, and this is something I actually really love and appreciate Chuck's work is the call, particularly, um, for folks in ministry to be attending to that interior world, you know, and, and there's lots of crossover with my work too, that, um, we simply can't, we're not external, we're not just external, right? So how we are with ourselves tends to impact how we are with other people. This is just a, this is just a neurobiological reality that tends to be true. So I think that really matters. But I think the thing that maybe matters even more is as we are able to access humility, to do what we can to recognize, um, you know, like there may be places where like our knowledge is limited and someone's like, okay, I want to tell you about this thing that happened or this thing that hurt. And sometimes that means referring or sometimes it's like, oh, gosh, I didn't even know about that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and building a, a culture, a culture that is, is more rooted in that humility, right? Because, and I love, I think it's, and I might be wrong, but I think humility is connected to um, the Latin word for ground, for hummus, right? For ground. Um, and, and for me in the work I do, it's like, I, I work a lot with people on getting grounded, literally meaning how do we stay in our bodies? How are we present to this moment? It's a way that communicates safety um, to our body. But I think it's a, almost a bigger idea here that like when we engage this work, there's like these lofty, big ideas. There's lots of work to be done in our world, in our churches, in our systems. And it's good to be aware of that work, but it's almost like we have to come back to the ground again and again to touch that place of saying, okay, like this is like, maybe this is just like my tiny, like here's my tiny little piece of work that's for me to do. And in a way, like that's a form, that's the humility I mean is um, not that we are like in some way minimizing ourselves 
or that we don't matter, but that we are recognizing coming back again and again to what is ours to care for, our own limits, our own fragility. Um, all of those things, I think, creates a situation in which we could say, you know, here's what I think, but I might be wrong. And that in and of itself, actually, to bring the neurobiological piece, communicates safety to people. And so there's this really beautiful flow that happens as we do our own work, as we connect to that groundedness and the humility that, again, it goes out of like, I know it in my mind. And it begins to be, no, I know this in my body. And I think for true shifts to happen, for true healing, for more um, that of the communal element of what we need, um, I think those are some of the things that need to be present. Thank you so much, Andy. That's really helpful. One of the things that I think you particularly introduce in um, Trisopter is the idea of a window of tolerance. And so as we're, as Josh is asking about, you know, how do people enter into the process of healing? Um, I think that's such an important concept. Could you inter- introduce us to the window of tolerance and kind of help us to think about our windows? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the window of tolerance has been a really transformative concept um, for me and ultimately for, I think for my clients and for my work, um, when I learned about this, it shifted so much of how I accessed or taught about healing work in general. Um, and so the window of tolerance is a phrase that was coined by um, Dr. Dan Siegel. And essentially the definition is that it's the range of arousal in which we can feel our feelings or we can um, have an experience or we can remember a memory and our body is able to to sort of be with it, to tolerate it. Um, and, And essentially that also means that the systems of our body, kind of like we were talking about with like being able to metabolize an emotion, those are all online. Those are available to us. And so this is really the place in which in many ways, I think this is the place in which we feel the most like ourselves, um, where we are able to sort of think about things potentially creatively. We have the potential to connect with people. Um, it's a very generative way like to be. And not that it's perfect and not that we don't make mistakes in this place. It's just that because we have access to more of ourselves, um, we are more likely to repair quickly or notice like if something is off, things like that. So when our body begins to perceive that we are having an experience or a memory or any type of cue um, that feels threatening to us, if the threat feels significant enough, we will go up out of the window of tolerance, usually first to our sympathetic nervous system. And that is where um, the sympathetic nervous system is all about mobilization. It's basically like my body, again, it's, it's the survival part of our brain. And my body's basically trying to say, what can I do to keep myself safe. So I'm going to, I might fight or I might try to flee. Or again, it's the hypervigilance maybe of like, Oh, what do you need from me? Can I help? Like tying myself in knots, even when I'm uh, like, it's not necessarily in alignment with what I really want or need. So all of these things, again, this is happening um, from the survival brain, which means that a, a really important part of our brain um, actually goes offline. And that part of our brain is our prefrontal cortex, which is kind of located right up here at the very top of our brain. Um, And this is a really important part of of our brain. It does a lot to help us integrate um, our different like experiences. We can think about things in complex ways. We can plan. Um, It's really important (laughs) is what I would say. And so, you know, so when that sympathetic nervous system, if it, if it doesn't resolve the threat, basically that's when, again, we'll go down into, I know we mentioned the, the dissociation that happens through something called our dorsal vagal and the dorsal vagal um, is connected to our vagus nerve. And it's basically like, like if you've ever had to pull the e-brake in a car, 
that's your dorsal vagal. <laughs> it's like, this is the last, st- like, this is our last hope. And so it's not like a little tap on the brakes, like, oh, I'm coming up to a light. Like that's what our, that's actually what our sympathetic nervous system's trying to do is tap on the brake. The dorsal vagal is like, all hope is lost. The world feels like it's ending. And so we are going to pull that e-brake. And so what it does is it's sometimes people call it like a, it feels like a dorsal dive. And it's that feeling where you're just like, maybe you walk into a room and the person who said all these things like that you, about you that you didn't even realize and you, you know, reminds you of your parent who like harmed you, all those things come together and all of a sudden your stomach drops and you're like, having difficulty, like remembering how that time like went, right? There's this feeling of a lot of times for people, it's like, I'm in quicksand. Like this is just, it's too much. And I share all this in part because this is a very, this is very visceral, right? And I think part of the work, and I, I kind of approach this in both of my books, but in a slightly different ways. Ultimately, the work of healing is a learning essentially to kind of keep a foot in our window of tolerance. And what that means is, is like, it's almost like we're keeping a tether to safety. Like it's like a rope, you know, I'm like, I might be feeling what I'm feeling, but like something in me is connected to something that feels real true and really grounded. And then that is facilitating actually a little bit of that prefrontal cortex coming back online. And what's actually happening is we're able to sort of be with the experience in our body. We're, it's no longer like, I am my anxiety. I am my pain. I am the, the bad thing that happened to me. What begins to shift is I am aware that when I talk to this person, I have some anxiety and I'm noticing that maybe I have some tension in my chest. So as you hear that, you might notice that shift, right? That it's like, and I think all of us, I mean, even for someone who doesn't identify themselves as a trauma survivor, this is true for anyone who has a nervous system to some extent, right? To shift out of this place of like, I am the pain to, I am aware that I have an experience but I also have choices. And because I have choices, that allows me to do some things that hopefully either help me feel more safe or feel my feelings or set a boundary or to leave the situation or maybe all of them, right? And so this is sort of the work. And so the I love the window of tolerance because it's just this very tangible. I find that a lot of people um, are able to connect with this and that over time they begin to feel in their own body. Here's what it feels like to be in my window. Here's when I feel like I'm starting to leave it. And here are some things that help me stay connected to it. Could you say more about how our attachment styles contribute to how those windows of tolerance get formed and perhaps how they kind of shape the size of our respective windows? Yes. Yes. Great question. Um, So with our attachment styles, and this is, I love how all this stuff works together because again, we are always being shaped, right? But when we're kids, like there's so much neuroplasticity, which is why I think for a number of reasons, kids are more both like so ready um, and primed for growth and yet also very vulnerable, Um, which is why I think childhood trauma can be very impactful because of how much is happening in our nervous system and in our bodies and our brains at that time. And so, so for like secure attachment, starting with that, um, a lot of times what is actually happening is that kids are experiencing their caregivers as a resource to help them feel their feelings. And so what that means, and I love, I love how this works, but essentially when, when any of us, but this is all, you know, especially true as kids, when every, when any of us are in the presence of another person who has a regulated grounded nervous system, because their body is literally without even saying words, communicating safety to our bodies, this is all happening through nonverbals, 
even the breathing, the facial expression. What happens is, is that that literally grows both people's windows of tolerance. I mean, essentially what's happening is co-regulation. Folks are regulating together. But let's say a child is dysregulated and a parent is regulated. What begins to happen is that the kiddo, whoever has the more grounded nervous system, tends, tends to win. And by win, I don't mean win. I just mean like that nervous system tends to shift, right? So kiddos in the presence of a parent's grounded nervous system, their bodies begin to be able to have a greater capacity to feel what they need to feel and ultimately return to homeostasis, return to a settled place. And so you could see how as like the benefits of that are pretty profound because if you grow up or if you have a lot of experiences, maybe, maybe that happened, you know, later in, but it, like later into your teenage years, but even that, like you didn't have a, a secure attachment until your teenage years, but even that would have significant impact. Um, but you could just see how a person who's had those experiences into adulthood essentially begins to intuitively know how to feel their feelings and they will have, um, probably a, a, an intuitively um, better opportunity to know how to work with and in their window of tolerance. So that's that secure piece. And, and so there's some pretty beautiful things that come out of that. Um, for folks who maybe have like that anxious ambivalent um, style, part of what's happening in childhood is when they are essentially, let's say, Let's say there, the kiddo is experience, experiencing the parent, um, not seeing them or missing them when they are feeling really sad. What's happening for that kiddo, because they've had some experiences where the parents shown up for them, they're predicting like, oh, maybe this time they're going to show up. And then it's like, Oh, nope, they didn't again. Their body is going into more of that. Um, a lot of times the sympathetic nervous system. Because what's going to begin to happen for the kiddo is they're like, they are, they are mobilizing a response based on needing the parent's care. So it's like, maybe that's, you know, yelling or crying or like wanting to be seen, right? Like these are cues. These are cues the kiddo is trying to give. And as adults, we might have our own versions of that, right? Like see me. Be there for me. Where were you? I thought you were going to show up for me. Um, and so this is a very sympathetic nervous system way, way to exist. Now, that doesn't mean that the other parts of our nervous system aren't functioning. But when this particular attachment dynamic comes online, that tends to be true. Um, for folks with that more avoidant attachment um, style, this is going to be more indicative of... of they come to realize that there are no cues, there are no cries that help. And so what begins to happen is that they just bypass the sympathetic. They're just like, yep, that doesn't help. They just drop, they just drop down into dorsal. And so that again is going to look a lot more like, Oh, Johnny or Oh, whoever, you know, they are just, they're fine. Right. Like they just take care of themselves. They don't need anything. Um, they're fine. And so it's that, that dorsal vagal is that sense of that disconnectedness, this way of bypassing the pain, um, by, um, essentially not being present to it is, is how that's going to look. And then finally, um, for this disorganized attachment, this is going to be a combination. Right. So it's going to be like that fright, like, oh, this is so scary. And maybe I need to get out of here. And then it might be dropping back down into like the disconnection, the dorsal, the dissociation. And so this, one of the things that tends to be true with that disorganized is whereas secure attachment, anxious, ambivalent and avoidant have a little bit of a pattern. What is different and maybe particularly significant about the disorganized attachment style is that there's no, or there, this is why a lot of times it's called disorganized is that there's no, there's no real pattern. It's tough to predict, like, am I going to be terrified or am I going to be dissociated? Am I going to be because 
when the attachment style was formed, there was no prediction. And so the body learns to just basically like, it just feels like you're in a snow globe. There's just no way to predict. There's just simply reacting to what's there. Thank you so much, Tandi. I think we have much that we could learn from you. But just one more question. You've talked a lot about what it's like for us to come to terms with how we were parented and the experiences that we had in our childhood. But I wonder for those of us who are now parents and might be hearing how important parent, good parenting is, uh, for those of us who might be hearing all of that and freaking out a little bit, what sort of guidance could you give us? How can we offer a good, secure attachment to our babies? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this I feel like whenever I talk about attachment, I feel like I can I know I know that feeling of like, oh no. <laughs> like what does this mean? You know, what does this mean? And so I first just want to validate and honor that and I and I think that I think one of the things again, I like to say this a, a lot, like our attachment styles are not indicative of like the love that we feel for our kids. They are not a diagnosis. Um, they don't make us have more value. Um, they are simply how our bodies have learned to adapt to get our needs met. And so I think that's where I would want to start, like to understand just on a functional level, like again, our bodies are brilliant. They are brilliant and they will help us to do whatever they can to get our needs met. And that's what these strategies are about. Now, obviously, as we've talked, there's value to moving the term when we grew up, like when we started with an insecure attachment and moved towards secure attachment is called earned secure attachment. And that's that work again, because our, these templates can shift. We have the ability, we have the uh, neuroplasticity to adapt. Um, so I think just to know that, like if that, if this, if you're hearing this and you're like, Oh, wow. Okay. I have some work to do. Um, I think that I get that. And that's, it's not a cause for shame. If anything, I think my hope would be that it's an invitation, perhaps first and foremost, um, for compassion for your own story, like as you're able, because if you carry one of those attachment styles, those insecure attachment styles, it's likely connected to some painful experiences. And so I think, you know, this is why, um, like it, yes, it absolutely matters in terms of for our kids. But the paradox is, is that shame, it keeps us stuck. Like from just like an even functional perspective, it keeps us stuck. But also it's not shameful to have experienced difficult and hard things. Like again, we just, we sort of do the best we can. Right. And so I think that's a couple of things to, to start with, but I think there are some really hopeful things to know. And one is, is that again, just like that question about like, how do pastors and how do ministry leaders um, do this, you know, do this work and create that safety? What I think is so cool about our bodies is that every tiny bit of healing work matters. Even the small, even the smallest amount of compassion you can offer yourself. What's so neat about this work is that it cannot help, but come through in who you are and how you are with your kids. Um, I often use this phrase that we learn to reparent the parts of ourselves who have experienced that pain. And so I think part of the work, you know, for many folks, um, it's this realization, like, not only am I parenting my kids, I'm also working to reparent some parts of myself. And so as we do that work of noticing, again, you know, like I talk about this pretty at length in both of my books. So if you're curious for some more resources, feel free to look there. But part of this is as we're able turning with compassion towards the pattern itself and almost like learning to get curious about um, what that's about, 
Like what, what's coming up for you when we predict abandonment? What's coming up for you when it feels like this situation is unsafe? What's coming up for you when you feel like you have to carry it all by yourself and there's no one there to help? And again, it's like all of these things, sometimes the reality is we're in a situation that is unsafe. Sometimes we're back with the people who really don't show up for us. Sometimes we're in a situation with someone who really consecutively disappoints us. So we hold these tensions of the past and how it's impacted us, the the present and the reality of now, and then also how that past and the present sometimes are talking to each other. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's just, there's a lot of potential here and anything that we do, um, there's this great quote. um, I love it from Anne Lamott. And she talks about like the greatest gift that we can give our kids is our own healing. And so whatever we're able to offer, like that's beautiful. That's, that's beautiful. That's work. That's a gift that they wouldn't have had. If you had not chosen to engage some of your own story. And so I know it's not easy and I know it's painful to sometimes look at those interactions. And yeah, I, I hope that folks as they are able can access some of that compassion. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Andi. This has been such a great conversation and will undoubtedly be a really helpful resource for our listeners. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 